pray one more time. Kind Father, as we open your word and we hear uh, you speak through your word, I ask that you would open our hearts to hear, your, to hear you speak, to have mercy on us, that we would not harden our hearts as many generations have, but as we hear your word, we would say yes to all that you proclaim to us as your people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple years ago, I entered a, a hospital room with a, a woman who knew she was not going to be leaving there. Her days would be measured in days, perhaps weeks, but certainly not months or years. She's a family friend of my wife who I spent very little time with, but as we had journeyed up around here, uh, she really wanted to see me. She was perhaps, perhaps the, the closest thing to a pastor that she, that she had. And those can be special moments. They don't want in those, you know, the waning days of their life, they don't want the niceties of a religious message, sugar-coated, where, you know, everyone feels nice about themselves and goes home happy. No, they, they realize that in a couple days, perhaps a couple weeks, they will stand face-to-face -face with Jesus. And they want the truth. They don't want a pretend reality. They want reality. And this particular woman had, a, in, in her time battling cancer, had a religious experience. Had something, you know, what she ex would describe as, you know, basically being in the presence of God. And what happened to her in that moment was not just even a joyful hope. Or an expectant, I, oh, I can't wait to be on that side. But, but she came to the realization of really the holiness of God. And how she, however good of a person she may have been, didn't measure up. Struck by her own sinfulness. By her own shamefulness. Is you know, thrown in her face in a way that she, it never had before. And she's wondering, well, if I'm going to be meeting Jesus, how can I, sinful, lowly, shameful me, be worthy of heaven, be worthy of him? The facade of living a good life was shattered. And so she's hoping, at some level, for some clarity. What's going to happen to me? Is there time for hope still? And getting to minister to her with the gospel is one of those great privileges of, of my life. But it's not something that's uncommon for us to do or to feel. And perhaps we're not struck by the realization of it as we're able to kind of meander through our days. But, but very often, so often, our own sinfulness and shamefulness, our own well, struggle with our own human condition prevents us from, from well, being near Jesus, accepting his grace. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you're using one of the, the pew Bibles that's in front of you, it's on page 1069. And Jesus is going to meet, well, a sinner, someone unworthy of his grace, I guess by definition, we all unworthy of his grace. But this particular person is, well, 
especially seemingly unworthy. And if you would, read this story uh, starting at verse 1 in chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man there, by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector he was, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, and when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Lord, look, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As we meet Zacchaeus, well, we, we meet a person in unusual circumstances. If you read with me again at verse 1, you know, Jesus, he enters Jericho as he was passing through. Now, Jericho was a major city where, you know, through which a lot of travel came, and pretty much anybody from from the east, and perhaps even the, the south, if they wanted to reach the ports, they would come through Jericho. And he sat there collecting tolls. He, it says, you know, he says he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He was somebody who, who sat there and as people came through and was able to, well, get as much money as he could. And he had underlings who would, who would work for him as they collected well, tolls to serve the Roman Empire and his own people. Now, tax collectors in the Bible, if you're familiar with, with, it's often lumped in with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. They were, at some level, the, the scum of the, the, the earth. And it's hard for us to really, I guess, wrap our brains about that. What made tax collectors so unpalatable to other people? Well, it's in some ways, it's the perfect storm of immorality. They were known for their disloyalty. When Rome would come in and conquer an area, they would use local people to say, hey, you can be in charge of collecting taxes from them. And the people would bid. They'd say, I could collect this much for you. And whoever was the highest bid, they would win the, thing. They would win the, the position. Right? So these are people who got their job and their source of wealth by squeezing their own people. Imagine in, you know, you know we're, there's the, the Russia-Ukraine war. Imagine Russia wins, and they set up, and they you know, ask, hey, Ukrainians, you know, we spent a lot of money on this war. Who's willing to go among your own people and you know, just collect their taxes? And you can imagine just the, the sense of disloyalty to whoever would pick up that, that position. That you, are, that you are abandoning your own people to serve our oppressors. Not only were they disloyal, but they were known for well, immor immorality, lying, stealing. They would, well, they would, well, 
manipulate things to be able to collect as much money as possible. Basically, when they would put in the, the bid to the Roman Empire and say, hey, we can collect this much, anything more that they collected was theirs to keep. And so they're incentivized to, well, collect as much, to squeeze as much out of their own people as they possibly could. Think of it like back, you know, several decades ago, our thoughts of a, a used car salesman. Now, I know there's probably good used car salesmen. If you're a used car salesman, I'm not talking about you, or maybe I am. Um, but, you know, nowadays, it's, it's, not so, it's not so easy to be a used car salesman and to, to swindle people because anyone can just go online and find the best possible deal and go in and, and get it. But before everything was online and easily accessible, well, they could prey upon people who didn't know what they were doing, didn't know what the market value was, didn't know what they could get. When my wife and I started dating, and, you know, the internet was still then. We're not that old kids. Um, but, you know, when we first started, you know, there wasn't quite as much online, and, you know, she needed a new car, and she went down with her dad to the car dealership and hoping that, you know, having a, a man there was going to help her from getting taken advantage of, and newsflash, it did not. Um, you know, would not give her any money off. I think her interest rate was like 14 or 15 percent. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, not knowing any better, you know, she signed the papers. And, you know, it was a good car. It lasted us a long time. But, you know, looking back, on, we did not get a good deal at all. He saw a mark and took full advantage. And so you have these tax collectors who are not only disloyal to their people, but immoral and trying to squeeze their people for as much as they want. And not only that, but they also had power. They're working with the oppressors. They, they, were, they had the sword of the state to, to get what they wanted. They, they didn't accrue their wealth like a Jeff Bezos who, who gets lots of money for giving you something that you want and a price that you find reasonable. No, 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 no. This is the, you know, the go government coming in and saying, hey, you are going to give us what we deem to be fit. Think more Sheriff of Nottingham than, you know, entrepreneur. And you have this perfect story. You know, they have power. They were immoral to steal and disloyal to the people. And so the people of, you know, the people of that area, they view tax collectors as really the scum of the earth. The people who would sell out their own, their own to make bank. And Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, wasn't only a sinner. Well, he's a chief tax collector. He was the chief of sinners. And yet when Jesus comes upon him, what does he say? He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to spend some time with you. I'm going to go and stay in your house. We see in Jesus someone who, who sees someone in their filth. And it's not saying, oh, this isn't a bad thing. No, no, no. It's not saying, oh, this is just a, a minor thing that Jesus was able to. No. This was disgusting. And yet when Jesus sees him, he says, hey, I'm going to spend some time with you. We see a Jesus who befriends sinners despite their sinfulness. A Jesus who sees all the, the sin that they have, all their disgustingness, and yet he extends friendship to him anyway. Over the past couple weeks, there's a, uh, in Shakespeare's Globe, it's a performing arts center in London. There, uh, 
making headlines is a, is a play that's come out. It's called I, Joan. And it's reimagining the, the story of Jonah Ark, um, but rather than it being the Joan of Ark of, of history, it's a, it's, they made her a, a non-binary heroine. Re, you know, taking this you know, Catholic woman you know, who, who led France, some of uh, France's armies against, in the Hundred Year Wars against England and saying, no, we're going to reimagine her. And rather than preaching Jesus, she's going to proclaim the, well, the gods of our current religion. And while it's been, you know, uh, questioned and bashed for, for many reasons, what I found interesting was in one of the opening soliloquies of, uh, of this particular play, the, the, uh, um, the person who plays the lead, she begins by, by making this offer, this invitation to the, to the audience. And so this is what she says, and I'm going to change the words slightly for vulgarity's sake. She says, yeah, this is going to get spiritual. Setting aside all religiosity, we'll focus instead on more of a, a street God, if you will. A God for the queers, and for the drunks, and for the beautiful, messed up people. A God for the godless. A God for you, if you want today. She makes this offer to the people in the, in the audience in this, you know, a post-Christian society saying, hey, you know, there is this God. There's this God that I, you know, he's, he's being offered to you today. But the irony is that this God whom she desires is the same God that she rejects. She assumes it's not the same God of Jonah Ark who spent her, her, her last moments being burned at the stake crying the name of Jesus. But Jesus is the street God. He literally is the God who made flesh and walked on our streets. The God who came for the, the queers and the drunks and the beautiful messed up people. He's a God who, who walked among us and whom the beautiful messed up people, the sinners, desire to see. The one that people like Zacchaeus would climb trees to be able to catch a glimpse of. The people whom prostitutes would come and sit at his feet and wash his feet with their hair. The kind of street God who came into our midst and the, the worst of the worst would clamor to him. And she thinks it's a different God than the God of Jonah Ark. But it's not. She inadvertently wants to invite you to that very same God. Not because he is a God who comes and he baptizes our sin and to make it holy. No, but, but he is the one who comes to baptize sinners that we would be holy. He's a God who knows the depths of the sins of, of us. Not just our our public sins that everyone can throw up and scorn us, but no, our, our private sins as well. The sins that we don't think anybody knows about. The one who, who knows all of, our, all of our thoughts. He knows all the good things that we've done that we've only done because we thought people would think better of us. He knows all the evil that we would have done if we weren't afraid of judgment or punishment. 
He's the one who knows just how little we love the good and how little we hate the evil. He knows all that, and yet what we see in him is one who befriends us anyway, who extends his offer to Zacchaeus and to us. And so we come to him because we see his grace at work in extending his his invitation to Zacchaeus. We see that he extends his invitation to us as well. If he extends it to the chief of sinners, to the lowest of low, well, there's good news. There's good news, isn't there? We too hear his invitation. We too are called to come, to open our homes to him, to invite him into our lives. That I can come to Jesus because he he befriends Zacchaeus despite his sinfulness. I can also come to Jesus because he befriends Zacchaeus despite its shamefulness. Do you notice the murmuring and the grumblings of the crowd? What do they say in verse 7? Read with me again. It says, all the people saw this, that Jesus would come and dwell in his house, and they began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Right? Jesus comes and he makes this invitation, and it's, it's, well, it's unlike anything that, that we often deal with. He experiences reputational shame and harm for befriending him. Right? What, did, what are the clouds thinking? We have plenty of, plenty, of, plenty of proverbs that suggest this, right? Birds of a feather flock together. If you lie down with dogs, you get fleas. You are known by the company that you keep. And so as Jesus comes and he dwells in the house of a sinner, of a sinner par excellence, what are people to think? This pro-Jesus crowd that it seems like, suddenly have this question, is he the guy that we thought he was? We thought he was a good guy. We thought he was righteous. We thought that he he was one of the good ones. But he's hanging out with Zacchaeus. I'm not sure if I want any part of his movement or his message. You know, we often laud the idea of Jesus' acceptance until he accepts some really bad people. Some people you're like, I don't want to be a part of that. But that's who Jesus is. And he doesn't do it for some, you know, bolster to his reputation. No, his reputation takes a hit. People start to look down on him and his ministry because he befriends sinners, because he befriends Zacchaeus. Now, it's one thing to show acceptance when it costs you little. But when it costs you reputational harm, not likely. It's easy for our students to sign non-bullying pledges where, you know, it costs you nothing. But to sit with the kid who sits alone at the lunch table who's kind of weird and awkward. Who, if you sit next to him, may cost you some, rep, you know, some reputation points some cool points, well, that's something else. Every June, you'll see for for Pride Month, um, certain companies make their their logo or their emblem in, you know, a rainbow flag. 
But it's always interesting that none of these same companies make their Middle Eastern division do the same thing. Why? Well, it's not going to argue any cool points over there. You can morally grandstand around here and everyone's going to celebrate you, but you do it in the Middle East, well, that's going to cost you something. There will be reputational harm to do so. And so they don't. And this is what we see in Jesus, that he befriends sinners so much that people will look down upon him, will have scorn for him. The title that was given was not given by his friends, but his enemies that called him the friend of sinners. It was said with contempt, with scorn, with malice, that this one who's come into our midst, who pretends that he is showing the way to God, yet he's a friend of sinners. But beloved, their, their murmuring and muttering is our miracle, isn't it? What the crowds grumble over is our gospel, that this one he has come into our midst, who befriends sinners such as us. The lowly of the low, those who add nothing to his mission, those who benefit him nothing, that he would befriend us, yet he does anyway. This is what Paul writes about when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. He, he reminds them of who they were. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Isn't it a good news that we who are called by him, who receive his call as Zacchaeus did, that it says that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Their grumbling is our gospel. But they said with malice and anger and frustration, well, that's the very thing that we cling to, this Jesus who is a friend of sinners. And so we come. We come because he befriends us despite our sinfulness. We come because he, he befriends us despite its shamefulness. But we come also because he befriends us to produce his salvation. Read with me again in uh, verses 8 and 9, 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Lord, look. Here now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's amazing how different Jesus' response to him is than ours would be. When he's walking down the street and he sees him up in the tree, how easy would it have been to say, hey, Zacchaeus, get your life together. You wicked scum. You disloyal, thieving, lying piece of refuse. Go get your life together. Stop doing junk. And then maybe we'll come and sit down and talk. Do the right thing, Zacchaeus. Everyone here knows you're a sinner. Just get your act together. 
how easy would that have been? How normal would that have been? Would any of us blamed him? I don't think so. But he didn't say that. No, he befriends Zacchaeus before he ever repents. He comes into his home before he ever makes a, a, a turn away from his life of wickedness and sin. He indeed is the friend of sinners. And it's through that friendship that Zacchaeus is changed and transformed that we see real, true, godly repentance. Remember last week, if you were here, and we went through the story of the, the rich young ruler, this guy who, who was wealthy, but he was wealthy in the good way. He seemed to regard God. He seemed to, to respect Jesus. who seemed to hold to the moral you know, values of the day that, hey, I've done all the law. And yet when Jesus challenges him, he goes away sad because he doesn't want to hear and respond to the call of gospel. And his, even Jesus' own disciples are saying, well, if he can't get in, who can? Who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? For, with man, it's impossible. But for God, nothing is impossible. And we see the evidence of that right here. Who takes not only the, the wealthy Zacchaeus, but he takes the scum of the earth Zacchaeus, and he is transformed through his friendship, through his grace, through his love. He repents, and he repents fully. He says, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. And anybody that I ripped off, I'm going to repay four times the amount that I, that I did. He's going above and beyond the demands of the law to make right the things that he, that he failed to do. And that's repentance, isn't it? Repentance is more than just saying, oh, I feel bad about those things. No, repentance goes so far as to say, I'm going to make right the things that I, that I did wrong as much as I can. Like if I stole $20 from you, and you confronted me and said, hey, listen, Aaron, you uh, stole $20 from me. I said, yeah, you know, uh, I'm sorry. I repent. And you would say, well, can I have my $20 back? And I'd say, no, of course not. And you would be like, well, what do you, in what way do you repent? In what way are you sorry? Well, I just feel bad about it. Is that Repentance. No, it's not. But what we see here in Zacchaeus is a real and true repentance. One that's the evidence and the fruit of meeting with Jesus, of experiencing his grace, that he turns and he becomes somebody that he wasn't before. We see the grace of God at work in producing the salvation through his friendship. Out of anyone I know in, in modern culture, uh, a man named Daryl Davis most exemplifies this kind of attitude. You may have seen him or, or heard his story before, but he is a black man, African-American, obviously. Um, he's a Christian and a musician. But what's most remarkable about him is that he spent the past several decades befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan going to rallies, meeting with them for lunch and coffee, discussing with them, knowing that they are racist, knowing that they, they believe that he was a lesser human being, that he was unworthy 
of being called an equal, and yet he spent decades meeting and befriending such people. One such encounter, it's earlier on in in this mission is he met with a man named Roger Kelly who was then one of the imperial wizards of the clan. He had his white secretary set up the meeting and they met in the hotel room and you know, Roger Kelly, um, you know, a high up leader within the, within the KKK, comes with his body, bodyguard strapped. His intense meeting, he describes it. At times fearful for his life. But he just asks questions tries to understand, hears him out, and end up emerging into you know, many different discussions, and a friendship began to emerge between these two people. Even though Roger Kelly held to his guns, I, he didn't disavow all his beliefs. He would come into, into Davis's home often, first with his bodyguard, and after several months, just by himself. Eventually, eventually they got to the point where he invited him to, into his home. Invited him to attend the Klan rally, which, they, which he did. And it was after years of this friendship that Roger Kelly ultimately turned in his robe and gave it to Davis. Davis ended up becoming the godfather to his daughter. You know, this is the kind of love that Christ offers the one who comes to his enemies, those whose hearts are hardened against him, he befriends them anyway and through whom we are transformed. Davis is, you know, has, through his friendship, has, has transformed hundreds of clansmen from turning, into their, turning in their robes. Their stories are, are powerful as his love, as his friendship, as his grace transforms them. And this is the kind of grace that Christ offers to us. That we see in his call to Zacchaeus, his own call to us. And today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his invitation, come to him. His call to Zacchaeus is a call to all sinners. That if he befriends him, despite his sinfulness, despite its shamefulness, despite the fact that he had not yet repented, you too can hear his call. And so, sinners, hear the invitation of Jesus, his, his call to you to, to befriend you, to accept you, to transform you, Know that you have one in heaven called the friend of sinners who sits at the right hand of God, who petitions him on your behalf, who says, that one is mine. And so this, this morning, if you hear his call, I encourage you to say yes to it. And at this time, I'm going to call up the, the worship team as we prepare to sing a final song. And I want to extend this invitation. If the Lord is working on your heart, if you hear his call this morning, if you know that, you know, I am not right with him, that you'd come get right with him. 
that you would accept his offer of friendship, that you'd be transformed by his grace, and that you would dwell in his love. And so if the Lord is working on you and, and you desire, I, I say turn to somebody that you know that you accept, or you can come up to, to me in the front, and I'd love to be able to pray with you. To bring reconciliation between you and, and a God that you might not yet know. And you experience his grace. Kind Father, come and by your grace and by your spirit, move in our hearts, we ask. Let these words sink in deep into the hearts of your people and to those who are not yet your people, that we would hear your voice, the voice of your Son calling to us to come down, to come near, to let him enter in. Lord, come among your people here this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.